Hey everyone, this is Pastor Laura Hutchinson from First Christian Church in Anniston, Alabama, and I am glad to have you back. I hope that you have had a good week and that life is treating you well and um, and that everything is going okay. And uh, I hope that uh, you're in the mood for uh, a challenging sermon. <clears throat> it's actually, I think it was more challenging for me to write than for you to listen to, but uh, that'll be for us to to decide together, right? Um, I have actually never preached on this text before because I have never really known what to do with it. Um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is a compilation of quotes and sayings from Jesus that Matthew put together uh, from a variety of sources and um, put them all together into one sermon. Uh, chances are real good Jesus did not actually just stand up in one place and say all of this stuff off the top of his head at one time to one group of people. But these are things that Jesus said throughout his ministry. Um, and these are sayings that were widely accepted by the church and widely shared and read by the church from sources like Q and Mark and um, and things like that. So if you're interested in the background of um, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and following, um, I encourage you to look it up, to read some commentaries, particularly the People's New, Co New Testament commentary on the New Revised Standard Version um, by Boring and Craddock. It's uh, got some really good insight as to um, all the different parts and pieces. But the pieces that we're dealing with today are specifically about Four topics that are strangely disconnected from one another, but four topics that have been used in the church, I think, maybe to uh, sort of beat people up rather than lift them up, I guess. You know, it's the scripture on divorce and adultery and on... Um, swearing, um, among other things. And those four, those, those things just don't seem to, well, adultery and divorce definitely go together. Right. But, um, the other things are strangely disconnected and I've never really known what to do with them, especially because, you know, I have lots of friends and family who have been divorced and some of those divorces I have actually very much encouraged, um, and I know that God doesn't like divorce, but still don't know what to do with the scripture. Well, I didn't. I do now. I think I figured it out. And I hope that you like, well, I mean, it doesn't really matter if you like what I say, because it's, I feel like I'm speaking for the scripture. So I hope that you get something out of this interpretation of the scripture. Let's put it that way. And um, anyway, again, as always, I encourage you to write me or to um, to call me. Apparently, you can leave me voice messages on um, on this app. And so I would love to hear from you. I hope you guys are doing well. And I hope you have a really, really great rest of your week. Love you guys. Bye. Let us pray. 
Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Today's a tough text. I don't know if you were listening to Anne when she read it. I'll be honest, I've avoided this scripture my entire career, so I'm preaching on this for the first time in 20 years. (laughs) Pray for me. Um, Last week, we looked at our call from Jesus to be the salt of the earth. Jesus calls us to season the world with the message of God's love. And we saw that God calls us to be the light of Christ, boldly shining from the hilltop. And to scream the good news of God's love so that everyone can hear it. I talked about my frustration with the fact that there were so many people out there who did not know that God loves them. And that we must do a better job of telling everyone. Well, believe it or not, today's scripture is also about love. Today's text is, in the, is the continuation of last week's message, another part of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. In his sermon, Jesus talks about some things that are at once familiar and uncomfortable. The familiar parts come from the law of Moses. They are rules that were taught in the synagogues, laws that every Jew lived by. You will not murder. You will not commit adultery. Men, you may get divorced, but you must give your wife a certificate of divorce so that she can remarry and be cared for. And only swear truthful things never lies. The thing about Jesus is that he doesn't want us to get too comfortable, does he? He always likes to shake things up and keep us on our toes. And so he tells us that we're not supposed to murder, of course. That's pretty much a well-known law and uh, not, not too difficult for us to follow, I hope. But then he says, however, I don't just want you to not murder people. I also want you to be, not to be angry with them either. And he says... Don't commit adultery. Okay, this is again a socially acceptable rule, accepted rule, but then Jesus says, and I don't want you to entertain lustful thoughts about someone who isn't your spouse either. So for me, I'm just going to have to stick with cartoons on television from now on because there are so many good-looking men on TV, right? So this is a problem for me. And then he cites the Jewish rule that you can get divorced, but he says, well... Let's not do that either. And finally, the commandment says that you shouldn't swear falsely. But Jesus says, I'd rather you not swear at all, even if you're telling the truth. So honestly, sometimes following Jesus is exhausting, right? Doesn't it seem like he's asking for the impossible? It's a bit, huh? Did someone answer me? (laughs) In my mind, I answered back. It is a bit overwhelming to think that if I harbor anger at someone, I'll be judged by God. If I look at someone and have lustful thoughts, it's as bad as if I had done the deed. If I've already gotten divorced or married someone who is divorced, I'm doomed. 
And every time I say, I swear to you, I'm telling the truth, I'm doing the devil's work? Like I said, it's exhausting and to some extent impossible. For example, in regards to the anger issue, the People's New Testament Commentary says that we do not have literal legalistic justification here. This is clear both from the fact that the demand is difficult or impossible to carry out. After all, becoming angry is not usually under one's control. And from the absurdly disproportionate punishment, not to mention the fact that if it is taken literally, the Matthean Jesus, Jesus from the book of Matthew, violates his own injunction. If you think about Jesus throwing the money changers out of the temple and in a rage turning over the tables. So what we have is a declaration of the absolute will of God, who wills that persons not only not kill each other, but that there be no hostility between human beings. The thing is, as usual, there is a lot more going on here than Jesus just trying to make our lives more difficult and more complicated. After all, we know from other passages in the Gospels that Jesus came to save everyone because keeping the law simply wasn't working, right? So even when we know what we're supposed to be doing, we still mess things up. We're still tripping over our own sinfulness. And Jesus is our lifeline out of the mess that we make of our lives. So if Jesus came to streamline our connection to God and heaven, then would he really put up more barriers between us and heaven? Well, no. First of all, we need to look at the structure of Jesus' lesson that gives us a clue about what's going on here. What he does in each of the four instructions is he reaffirms the law, he radicalizes the law, as he likes to do, and then he provides one or two situational applications to express what he means. It seems a bit like he is reinterpreting the old authority of the Hebrew scriptures, but really Jesus does more than that. What he's doing here is he is transferring the authority from the ancient texts to himself. He's saying, I am now the authority here. He says, God is present in me. Therefore, if I change the law, I am not committing a transgression. I am transcending the old authority. So he is staking claim on the law is what he is doing, first of all. He says that the ancient laws are of God and are still in place, and I'm here and now, and I'm taking it to the next level. You've heard it said in reference to biblical laws that Christians are not forced to follow the letter of the law, but rather we are always to look for and follow the spirit of the law, right? Well, remember when I said that these four radicalized laws that Jesus puts before us are really about love? Let me explain. All six are expressions of the love command and keep it from being trivialized or sentimentalized. If you'll remember in Matthew 22, 34 through 40, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
And the second, and this is the greatest in first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What Jesus has laid out for us in these four revamped commandments is an illustration for how to live out these two most important commandments of all. Not murdering people is a good start, right? But not harboring anger towards someone is just as important. If we practice reconciliation and forgiveness for the people who wrong us, then we are living out the command to love our neighbor. Then he takes it further to say that if you know someone is upset with you, leave your offering at the altar and go make things right with them, and then come back and give your gifts to God, because Jesus is saying that reconciliation is more important even than worship. Reconciling with someone whom you have wronged or with someone who has wronged you is an act of love. It is the kind of difficult and gritty love that Jesus calls us to be. Adultery, not only the physical deed, but the intention of the heart, makes one guilty before the law of God. But not only that, it's a betrayal of your commitment to God and to your spouse. God wants us to practice loyalty and fidelity in our minds and our hearts because that characterizes the kind of relationship that we have with our Lord and Savior. And now concerning divorce, this is the hardest one for me. Jesus said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. Now, the commentary said that by including an exception clause, that is, the exception is, of course, adultery. By including an exception clause, Matthew has in principle indicated that if there is one exception, there can be others. He does not attempt to prescribe what these might be, but illustrates that the teaching of Jesus must be interpreted from case to case without establishing a rigid law that only one case is legally an exception. So instead, Jesus is establishing an ideal in the way that we conduct our commitments to our spouses. It's an ideal. It is the best case scenario. It is what God asks us to strive for. In some Christian traditions, this text has been used to ostracize, shame, and punish those who have gotten divorce. I know many of you who have witnessed or experienced this. I believe that too, that too is a betrayal of the spirit of the law. What Jesus wants is for us to consider our vows of love to be sacred before God, but that there are exceptions. I'm just going to throw a couple out there. If your spouse leaves you, there's not a whole lot you can do about that, right? If your spouse beats you up and puts your life in danger, 
I believe that that is being unfaithful to your spouse. These are just my personal thoughts about it, but these are times when I think, Ultimately, it is between the married couple and God. It is not for us to be judging them, but just God and Jesus are laying out the ideal. In a perfect world, you will not get divorced. But in a perfect world, your spouse will treat you with love and respect and kindness, right? And will not betray you. And finally, there's swearing. Now, Jesus is not talking about saying certain curse words here, although I don't advocate that. I have been known to use some, though. Thankfully, that's not what he's talking about here. He is talking about swearing that something is true. You know, I swear to God that I'm telling the truth. That's what he's talking about. The ancient divine law said that we're not to swear falsely. For example, we're not to lie under oath. But Jesus says, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for that is the throne of God, or by earth, for that is God's footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your own head, for you cannot make one hair on your head white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. So what Jesus has done here is he has abolished the distinction between words that have to be true and those that do not have to be true. Between words that one is compelled to stand behind and those that one does not have to stand behind. And rather, Jesus calls for all speech to be truthful. Just be honest on a regular basis. Because you shouldn't have to swear that you're telling the truth if all of your words are always true, right? And being honest is an act of love for both God and your neighbor. Though, remember that in keeping with the spirit of the law, don't use honesty as an excuse to deliberately hurt another person, right? You know, like when someone says, what? I was just being honest. Remember that for Jesus, it is all about love and respect for our fellow human being. Ultimately, what Jesus is doing here is establishing a way of being, a way of life in Christ. Jesus is showing us that to be his follower, to dwell in the kingdom of God now and in the future, we must transcend the status quo and be better. Not better than them, just better than we were yesterday. Jesus wants us to always be reaching for a better way of being in our own hearts and in our own minds. He wants us to be more and more aware that we are living in the realm of God now. And so God requires more from us. Not in the form of rule following, but in the form of living lives steeped in love for God and others. We are representatives of the realm of God, and Jesus wants us to begin living out our heavenly calling here in this place today. It's not easy. 
We're not actually expected to be perfect, but Jesus wants us to constantly be working at setting a new standard for the kingdom of God. Imagine how much stronger our ministry will become to the world when people see us emulating Jesus in more and more ways as we walk this path called life. Amen? Amen. Amen.